It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello! Hello. How are you? I got up this morning and looked outside at seven and it was totally dark and I thought... Do you know who I blame for how depressing this time of year is? No. The pagans. Go on. Because they obviously were aware of the darkest time of year coming, the winter solstice. Yeah. And they started building celebration around it and eventually that became Christmas. But they didn't think about coming out the other side, coming out the dip. So you've got all this stuff around the winter solstice and building up to it, and then nothing after it. The upswing is the best thing you can say, isn't it? Are you you joining me and turning on the pagans? No. (laughs) Got other fish to fry. (laughs) Let me ask you a question. How interested are you in all this AI stuff uh, that's been released recently? Yes. Seriously? I only asked this because at Christmas lunch I was telling you about the AI-generated portraits and you kind of glazed over. And then I sent you some AI-generated portraits of yourself and, and you, you didn't respond. Maybe I'm more a textual rather than a visual person. Ah. Uh, Do you think? Because there's one in particular yeah. that it came up with. You look like a bad boy from a John Hughes 80s film. Wow. Look at that. That looks good. Look like the rebellious character from The Breakfast Club. Yeah, that's... I, I mean... Gosh, that is just far too flattering. You though. should show that to Justine. I think. I think maybe spice things up a little. Can if Rachel, you dress like that? Can Can Rachel post it in the show notes? I think. I think she can. Bass guitar there slung over your shoulder. You should get that on your next election leaflets. I like the upturned coat. This is what makes you look like a bad boy. In fact, you know what you should do: get huge banners with that picture on them, and then drape them from every lamppost in your constituency. It might, it might be a little bit North Korea, isn't it? Uh, I think it's very interesting technology. Um, what is it doing, though? Well, th- ethically, it's interesting. It's an app. So you put your, your yeah. 20 photos of you into it, and then it looks at your face and the dimensions of your face, scrapes 
art that is similar, I guess, on the internet, and then generates something new. But are you asking it, it to, ge- to to generate a particular type of art? No, no. I'm guessing that's something it could do, but. Um, Obviously, the art it's scraping belongs to creators, and creators aren't getting paid when it does that. But then you can make the argument that all creators are influenced by every other art they've ever. uh, And is it a graphic? What what, I mean, it's just a graphic, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. And what about ChatGPT? Have you played with that? Uh, I've sort of seen other people playing with that. So you you know what it is. In case people don't know what I'm talking about, it's uh, it's a computer program that can understand and respond to text like a human. Uh, It can answer questions, carry on conversations, or even write stories or articles. Someone posted an amazing one of um, God gives you advice on how to get the peanut butter sandwich not stuck in your VCR. And it did it. Yeah. I mean, in a very funny way. I asked it to do something rather less complicated. Yeah. I asked it to write a soundbite yeah. in the style of Ed Miliband. Oh. I sort of felt at the beginning of this conversation there was <laughs> it was heading for a sort of bad situation. What I've done is I've, um, I've got two here for you, and I'd like you to read them both aloud, and we can guess which one is a quote from real Ed Miliband and which one was generated by ChatGPT. So what do we need to do today? This is one. We need to Come ref- on, give it, imagine you're at a podium. I need a bit, bit more uh, pizzazz than that, a bit more performance. So what do we need to do today? We need to reform our economy, to take on the vested interests that block the opportunities for our small businesses and for all the other forgotten wealth creators. OK, that's number one. Number two. We must come together to build a fair economy that works for the many, not just the few. An economy where everyone has a fair shot at success and a decent standard of living. Now, one of those is you... One of them is ChatGPT. Which is which? Okay, so I think the second one is ChatGPT. What makes you think that? I don't think I would necessarily have used the phrase fair shot. Mmm. You didn't. The first one is you. But I chose the first one because I think it sounds a bit more clunky than the one generated by ChatGPT. Well, I think you do. No, I think ChatGPT tends to sound less clunky, no? Yeah. Wow. Fair shot was the only real giveaway. Oh, I also asked it. I asked it to make a humorous quip about David Cameron in the style of Ed Miliband. Yeah. Do you want to hear what it came up with? Yeah. It said, I'm sorry, but it would not be appropriate to make a humorous quip about someone in a disrespectful or derisive way. Now, what do you think that says about our politics, Ed? <laughs> really? That's funny, isn't it? Yeah. It's yeah. got ethics. Now, but we're going to do this on a future episode, aren't we? Yes. We've got multiple ways in. I think, I think it's so interesting. Um, I, I also asked it, what should I talk to my podcast co-host about in the intro to this week's episode? Yeah. And it said, some things you might want to consider are current events, personal experiences, or a deep dive into a specific topic relevant to your listeners. You can also consider a more light-hearted intro, such as a quick roundup of the news, pop culture, or even a joke that you can both laugh about. You could always give a brief overview of what you'll be talking about on the episode. <laughs> and I thought that was a great idea, so let's do that last one. Very good. This week we're talking about how we tackle climate misinformation. Misinformation about the climate can undermine our efforts to fight global warming, It sows confusion, polarises opinion and distracts from the solutions needed to reach our climate goals. We're talking to Jenny King from the Institute of Strategic Dialogue, to friend of the pod, Professor Sander Van Linden, about the psychology behind misinformation spread. And finally, we'll chat to Sean Bucken, who's the director of a grassroots campaign called Stop Funding Heat, which seeks to make misinformation about the climate 
unprofitable. Now, I know you're very excited about your reason to be cheerful, yes. so, so let me get mine out of the way very quickly so it's not an anticlimax. My reason to be cheerful is uh, Sarah's show is at the Soho Theatre in London this week from Wednesday until Saturday. It's called Hard Feelings. She first did it at the Edinburgh Festival. It's very funny. It's quite humiliating for me, but it's still very funny. Wh- which night did you end up getting tickets for? <laughs> what? What? I mean, you'd want to support her. I definitely you? do want to support her, yes. Yeah, so so which night have, have you gone I'm, for? You're putting me on the spot here. <laughs> when does it run till? It's just, it's just four nights, Wednesday oh, through Saturday. I'm sorry. Sorry, I mean, I only told you about it a couple of months ago, so it was, it was dropped on you at the last oh. moment, really. That's Sarah Barron, Hard Feelings at the Soho Theatre in London, Wednesday to Saturday. Now, what is your reason to be cheerful that you're so I'm not sure how I feel about, about it now after you've sort of non-ticket shamed me. Oh, come on. It's just a bit of fun. Um, it was. It, do you know what it was? Bants is what it was. Okay. Bants. So my reason to be cheerful is that I made a soup. Oh. Um, and you th- Did you threaten you were going to last week? I did. Uh, and it was from the Hugh Fernley Whittingstall um, cookbook. And you didn't get invited to the party. No, but no. <laughs> I just thought I'd say that so that you didn't. But second best... I brought some of the soup, what, leftovers. When you say second best, you mean sloppy seconds. Yeah, well, I mean leftovers. Literally leftovers. From how, how many days ago was this? Well, I did freeze it. Okay. I, took, I thought of you immediately okay. on Saturday night. I froze it, and then I brought it for you to taste, wow. and I warmed it up in your microwave. And so here we go. It's wonderful seeing you operate in the uh, microwave earlier. <laughs> he was using the microwave. He was using the kettle. Impressive. It was, it was really some top cordon bleu stuff. So I'm looking at it. It is... I would say uh, a, a shade of green you might associate with the military. Right. You know, so camouflage mm-hmm. Um Presentation leads a little to be desired. It's, it's, it's splattered all around the side of the bowl. Yeah, sorry about that. Which you tend not to get in, in these top restaurants. But uh, the consistency is interesting. Well, it's a little bit sort of gloopy. It, it reminds me of nothing so much as um, Ready Brack dyed green. <laughs> To look at, but this is this is just how it. But looks. actually, it was. I, I have diluted it a bit because I agreed it was too sort of thick. Have you seen the second Paddington film? Yes, and a lot of it's set in a prison canteen. Yes, I, I, think, I, I, I made, made that joke remember. before. Honestly, I think I think that joke is sort of worn thin. Sorry, <laughs> like the uh, gruel t- that I'm about t- to taste the bloody soup. Okay, here we go. I'm raising it to my mouth now. Do you know what? If, if somebody served me that in a restaurant, I would not send it back. Aww. Depending on how high-end the restaurant was, I might complain to whoever I was about dealing the presentation. with about it. But, but um, that's quite tasty. It's got a nice sweetness to it. I had a bit of a business because I over-salted. So then I had to do some course correction with lemon and vinegar. I did look up on the internet, how do you course correct? So I did some lemon and vinegar and also a tiny bit of sugar. Well, I, th- I think it's only added to the overall effect. I was quite pleased with it. So what would be nice in here is some mint leaves or something like that. Yeah, well, that's how I did serve it. Oh, but not just not for me. Not for you, no. Well, I think you should feel very proud oh, of yourself. Well, thank you, Jeff. Does it make up for me failing to book tickets for Sarah's show? No, no, no. Right, that's, okay. that's, a, yeah, that's a much bigger slight to me and my family. After all the hospitality and kindness we've shown you over the years. <laughs> <laughs> Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. So to start the conversation, I'm delighted to say that we're joined by Jenny King, who is Head of Climate Research and Policy at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue. 
Jenny, thanks so much for joining us. A pleasure. Thank you for having me. Maybe you could start by telling us what the Institute for Strategic Dialogue does. Absolutely. The Institute for Strategic Dialogue was founded around 15 years ago, and historically, its mandate has been around tracking the evolution of extremist ideologies and trying to counter the impact that they have on public life. And over the course of of that 15-year history, we've ended up moving more and more into the spaces of disinformation and weaponized hate. And the reason why we started working on climate around two years ago is because we found that a lot of the communities that we were looking at had gradually started picking up on environmental issues and bringing them into this highly controversial culture wars or identity politics frame. And Jenny, could you define for us climate misinformation, how that's different from disinformation? Absolutely. The the important thing that distinguishes those two phenomena is around intentionality. So when we talk about disinformation, there is a clear motivation to mislead or deceive the audience. And so in the context of, of climate, that maybe you could say historically that's come from industry actors or those with a vested interest in maintaining the fossil fuel economy. Whereas when we talk about misinformation, that's a much wider ecosystem. And probably all of us at one point in time have been purveyors of misinformation because the pace of social media and the way that our information environments work and also because of our enthusiasm to share things that we think are interesting or relevant or incendiary is that we might post or like things or amplify things online that also turn out to be misleading or false. But the key factor there is we didn't have an intent to cause harm with that information. We may be ourselves believed it was true, but we hadn't done our due diligence in checking sources. And what impact does climate misinformation and disinformation have on our efforts to tackle the climate crisis? This is not a new crisis in the sense that there have been a number of actors since the 1970s who have been dead set on maintaining the status quo and in the beginning denying the reality of climate change at all. And over time, they have evolved their tactics in order to exploit what I like to call the last mile, which is really the gap between an understanding of the problem and actually implementing the kinds of policy and legislative agendas that are needed to tackle that problem. And that's more where we're at at this point in time, at the beginning of 2023, is that in most countries around the world, according to surveying, there is a general consensus that climate change is an urgent problem and that it needs to be tackled through government or multilateral action. What is much less certain and much more confusing for the general public are the kinds of viable solutions that are going to help us achieve something like the Paris Agreement. There is a real vulnerability in that gap because ultimately it doesn't matter if you're denying that climate change exists or if you're blocking any sort of policy agenda. The end result is the same, which is that we don't limit warming below safe levels. We don't mitigate the catastrophic impacts of climate change and we don't make the kind of infrastructural or systemic changes that are needed to avoid the escalation of those problems going forward. And Are there some common themes or categories of climate misinformation or disinformation that you've identified? Absolutely. There is a a wonderful taxonomy that's been put forward by by some academics, including John Cook at at Monash University and others. And I would encourage all of your listeners to Google a comic by Celine Keller called Discourses of Delay. But I think 
a good way to summarize it is under four pillars. The first is redirecting responsibility. And sometimes we call this whataboutism. At ISD, we often refer to it as absolutionism, which is essentially the idea that, yes, climate change is a problem, but somebody else should be tackling it, either because they have a bigger historic carbon footprint or because, you know, they're worse offenders at this present point in time or because they have more resources at their disposal. So it essentially shifts the burden and the onus of action onto some other party. The second is that it's not possible to solve this problem at all. So it's that kind of surrender or fatalist argument, which I think is a very resonant one with average people. You know, it, it, this is a very scary prospect and it seems like quite an all-encompassing problem. And so there is a, an argument that can be made, which is, well, any efforts to solve this problem are going to be overly expensive, overly destructive to your way of life. So the path of least resistance is just to keep things as they are. So that's sort of pillar two. Pillar three is that disruptive change isn't necessary. So we don't need to phase out coal. We don't need to fundamentally change the way that the energy grid is structured. We don't need to do major investments in renewable energies because something else is going to come along, which will be a silver bullet solution. And then the last of the arguments is emphasizing the downsides of climate action. One of them might be perfectionism. You see this a lot around electric vehicles at the moment. So it's the idea that, well, electric vehicles include rare earth minerals and those rare earth minerals are not mined in the most environmental way. Therefore, electric vehicles are not green and we should stay with diesel engines, right? Even though if you look at the life cycle of an electric vehicle, it is by every conceivable metric better for the environment than traditional fossil fuel cars. So it's this idea that, you know, we're never going to be able to get it quite right. If we do try and pursue more comprehensive agendas, it's going to, you know, disadvantage those who are not the elites. And therefore, it's better to stick with what we've got. That's a really, really helpful way of setting it out. What are some of the recent trends you've seen when it comes to how climate misinformation is being spread and funded? The biggest evolution that has occurred, I think, over the last decade, but has probably been turbocharged in the last few years, is how climate has become central to broader culture wars and identity politics. And what we're seeing more and more is that pushback on climate action comes alongside other forms of divisive or discriminatory rhetoric online. For example, when um, when Elon Musk took over Twitter, there was a lot of conversation around um, First Amendment rights and what was going to happen with free speech. And what you would see were posts that said things like, in bullet points, climate change doesn't exist, there are only two genders, all lives matter, abortion is murder, and the COVID-19 pandemic was invented by Bill Gates. It's really that one example is a perfect encapsulation of what's happening on climate. It has become symbolic of this globalist elitist plot to ensure government overreach and to infringe on people's civil liberties. There have been a few things that have made that even more resonant with the public. The first was the COVID-19 pandemic, which gave people lived experience of having their freedom of movement and their you know, freedom of, of existence shift from one day to the other. And that has been preyed upon by actors who want to say that is just a precursor of what is going to happen under the pretext of solving climate change. And the second this year, which is sort of a, an aftershock, is economic recession, 
and the, and the cost of living crisis, and all of that being expedited by Russia's illegal war in Ukraine and what that's meant for energy supply chains. And all of those have created a lot of vulnerabilities, which are very easily exploited by those who want to promote the fossil fuel lobby. And you've spent a lot of time analysing climate misinformation that's posted on social media. I want to talk about solutions. Let's start with the platforms like Facebook, Twitter and others. What role do they have in countering this misinformation? We are always urging the the tech companies to look at this from much more of a systemic point of view, rather than on legislating individual posts. And actually, what we keep finding over and over again is that there is probably a, a cohort of maybe 20 to 50 accounts globally that are responsible for originating, amplifying and giving oxygen to the worst, delayist and denialist arguments across the globe. 20 to 50 accounts? Yeah, it's, it's that I mean, small. That's very Small. It's, it's unbelievably small, but it's it's very mutually reinforcing. Who are those people? It's a mixture, really, um, of a couple of different groups. On the one hand, you have the old school think tanks and lobbyists who have been working in cahoots with the fossil fuel industry for right. decades and who have a very sophisticated messaging playbook on why they don't think climate action is viable. And But over time, they have come into contact with this much bigger and, and really interesting interesting and kind of ambiguous ecosystem of culture war influences. People like that have begun to talk about and indeed to weaponize climate issues as indicative of these other things that I've talked to you about. Freedom, power, government overreach. And as a result, millions more people are being exposed to the kinds of arguments that previously would have been housed within a relatively fringe or niche community of these think tanks and these lobbyists. So they're sort of laundering and mainstreaming these industry positions to a far more generalised public. What needs to be done? The very first thing, I think, if you're trying to tackle any problem is that you need to have defined parameters. Otherwise, you end up getting into mud-flinging matches and you know talking about censorship and all of these things that are really not helpful. We are not suggesting that anyone's free speech should be restricted. We're not suggesting that people even be deplatformed unless they violate platforms' terms of service. Sure. What we're saying is that you really need to look at the, the algorithms and the way that content is curated and presented and how certain arguments always seem to be rising to the surface of people's news feeds. What we keep finding time and again is that the most outrageous and misleading and incendiary content on climate is continuing to break through the noise. Another trend that we've seen on Twitter this year, which is quite extraordinary to us, and we first noticed it during COP27, which happened in November, is that if you type climate into their search bar, so just a generalised search for climate, the very first result, or certainly within the top three, is hashtag climate scam. Now, We have done a huge amount of trying to forensically unpack why that would be the case. Is it because Climate Scam has more content? Is it trending? Is it getting undue popularity? And we can see no explanation with the available data as to why the platform would be actively recommending hashtag Climate Scam. But... You know, very clearly, that sets a tone to conversations around climate on the platform. And more importantly, and this is really crucial, it creates the impression to users that that conversation is more popular than it is in reality. Last question, Jenny. What, what keeps you optimistic uh, in this area? <laughs> a great question. And there are reasons to be cheerful on this, because two years ago, 
absolutely nobody was talking about climate disinformation. Climate denialism had been on people's radars for a long time, but even the key institutions like the UN, who sort of lead the charge on climate action, had not considered tackling this problem as part of their mandate and their remit. And what we've seen over the past 18 to 24 months is that rapidly change. And ISD is now part of a coalition called Climate Action Against Disinformation, which has 50 organizations and partners worldwide that are contributing to that and are really trying to push on all of these different doors, financial standards, advertising, tech platform transparency, educating the public, working with newsrooms to improve their editorial stances and make them more attuned to some of the more insidious and subtler forms of, of delayism. So that momentum is now there. And all I can hope is that over 2023, we see that really taken to the next level and formalised in some system level responses that put us on a good footing as we go forward. Well, look, Jenny King, you've really set out so clearly some of the issues that we are facing and some of the ways of dealing with them. If people want to know more about how they can be part of this, is that something that they could find from your website? Of course. If you go to isdglobal.org, you can find all of our research, including the big reports that we've done, the laying out the markers in the sand on climate mis- and disinformation. And you can also go to the coalition's website at caadcad.info. Jenny, thanks so much. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Well, to carry on the conversation, I'm very pleased to say that we're joined by Professor Sander van der Linden, who is Professor of Social Psychology at the University of Cambridge and a friend of the pod. He came on the show in 2019. Sander, thanks so much for joining us. You've got a new book that's coming out foolproof about the psychology behind misinformation spread. Can you tell us a little bit more about how this spread of misinformation works? 
Yeah, absolutely. And a pleasure to be back on the, on the show. So the book is divided in, in three parts, really. Uh, the first is, you know, why, why our brains are so susceptible. And then the second part dives into how, how misinformation spreads. And, um, you know, I talk about how the architecture of social media has fundamentally rewired the flow of information in society, um, particularly in terms of the speed and velocity with which information can travel. You know, research shows that falsehoods spread faster and deeper than true information online. So in terms of the old saying, uh, a lie can make its way halfway around the world before the truth even has a chance to get its pants on. And so that's, you know, that's basically true uh, of a lot of social media. Is it harder as a result of that to, to trace these things back to the source? Well, that's a great question. And sort of it depends on the type of social media. So what we're seeing right now, you know, we, we do work with some social media companies. But if you take, for example, WhatsApp, they have end-to-end -end encryption. Um, and so they have problems actually tracing misinformation back to the source, either because they can't or because they, they don't want to. And we're talking specifically this week, Sander, about misinformation around uh, the climate crisis. Can you talk to us about some of the tactics being used by people or outlets around misinformation on climate? Yeah, so misinformation on climate is really interesting. So historically, you know, most of the disinformation were documented campaigns where the goal was to cast doubt about the scientific consensus that humans are causing climate change. I mean, this is well documented um, and this has been concerted for many years. And it, it works psychologically because when you continually uh, try to portray the message that the science isn't certain enough to take action, when you prop up contrarians and fake experts, it leads to public confusion. And that's what the data shows. People have remained confused over the scientific consensus, uh, both in the United States, but also here in the UK. I mean, we've done studies recently polling the UK public, asking people what percent of scientists they think agree. And a lot of people still think that there's disagreement in the scientific community. But the second trend now is actually moving away from disinformation about the, about the cause and attacking solutions. So there's a huge amount of disinformation, for example, about the, um, um, the cost of electric vehicles. Um, industry has been involved. The plastic industry has deceived people on the benefits of recycling for decades, and that's now ongoing in the United States. And when we think about climate misinformation and disinformation specifically, is there a way in which the organisations, perhaps uh, fossil fuel companies or whatever, b behind some of this, are specifically thinking about people's susceptibility to conspiracy theories or a mistrust of elites or whatever. Are they thinking about that in this sort of clever, strategic way? Yes. Well, there's documented evidence uh, about some of the strategies and, and the motivations uh, behind them. So, for example, uh, Frank Luntz, who was a political strategist uh, during the, the Bush administration, uh, one of the things that he advised, and we researched this later on and unfortunately turns out to be true, was that his, his thought process was that we need to continue to emphasize uncertainty about the science because, you know, when people believe that the science is settled or that scientists agree, then they're going to take action accordingly. And so we need to prevent that from happening by continually casting doubt on it everything. Um, and this is a very, very interesting strategy. So they're not trying to convince you of alternative facts specifically. They're just raising questions and casting doubt about the about the science. So one way to do that is to prop up fake experts, which also they call the white coat strategy. Uh, it's a similar tactic that the tobacco industry used to, to cast doubt on the link between smoking and lung cancer. And so so they, they would get contrarians, uh, people who don't actually have any expertise in climate to start talking about how climate change isn't real. Um, and, and then they use that 
that to fracture public debate and get people doubting because they know that, you know, if there's doubt in the public consciousness, people will be more hesitant to act. Uh, and so that's why they're often referred to as the, the margins of doubt. And do you think this 97% of scientists say human-induced climate change is real is a good counter to that? Because don't people then think, well, yeah, but maybe the 3% are right? That's an interesting question. I mean, in some experiments, uh, if you highlight the 3%, but if you put the if you put the emphasis on, you know, 97 or now it's even 99%, if you say most right. scientists agree, right, then that tends to be a powerful psychological strategy. And ideally, you do that preemptively because it's more effective if it comes first, rather than trying to counter argue with people. So, you know, if we if we keep telling people that there is a consensus, then when they start casting doubt, people will be more resilient. And I think that's what kind of went wrong in the first place. And it's not just the fault of industry. I mean, the media perpetuated this false balance myth as well. I mean, the BBC has apologized for this about, you know, always having a contrarian in the debate and so on. And so that, that leads to confusion as well. Last thing I'll say, when you zoom out um, and you see that the strategies that are used on COVID, climate, there are similarities. So the, what they call the outrage machine um, is often the uh, technique called trolling. So they're trying to bait people on both sides of the debate and get them riled up uh, and, and start arguing. And we, in one paper, we looked at millions and millions of social media posts on both Twitter and, and Facebook. And one of the things that predicts engagement is this idea of outgroup derogation. So basically dunking on the other side. So stuff that, that is negative about the other side is what's getting traction on social media. And so what a lot of these actors try to do is fabricate misinformation in a way that creates division, because that's then amplified on social media. That's how it spreads and undermines public discourse. And how do we counter climate misinformation, Sander? Is it facts? What's your thinking? Yeah, so my thinking is, I mean, facts can't hurt. You know, there's two facts that we find that resonate well with people who are in denial or, or doubt about climate change. The first we've already discussed, which is the scientific consensus. Because it doesn't directly push people into any policy options, it, it tends to be a good conversation starter. But the other one, this is a really interesting one, is really about local impact. So what we found is if you tell people or get them interested in learning about how the weather and how the climate is changing in their area, that tends to be a good first step in, in getting people engaged and wanting to find out more information. And I think there's a huge challenge that we're facing now in, in always trying to debunk and fact check after misinformation is already out there, after millions of people have been duped by it. So we've really been stressing a proactive management strategy around this idea of pre-bunking or inoculation. And that's really about building preemptive resilience to the idea of, of misinformation. And so really, uh, it really comes down to the vaccination analogy. You preemptively expose and refute weakened doses of the types of misinformation that people are likely to come across in the future so that people actually build up intellectual and cognitive antibodies. And this process, it's, it's actually about raising some potential future misinformation in weakened form that people might be exposed to and then persuasively actually refuting that in advance, telling people why it's manipulative, why it's wrong, giving people the tools in advance they need to withstand it. So then when people actually come across it when they hear it from a neighbor, when they hear it from a friend uh, in the pub, they can they can not only say it's false, but actually can counter it with specific tools that you've been arming them with. So it's all about this sort of preemptive strategy. And what is the best way of then spreading that inoculation? Is it media? Is it individual conversations? 
Both. Yeah. So people often ask, okay, who should be, you know, the, the Uber inoculator or something like that? And I, I think it's just a, a tool for people. You know, it could be, you know, we've done, we've done work with the UK government. We've done work with the World Health Organization or social media companies, but you know, anyone can be an inoculator. And so it's really meant to be a tool for people to have everyday conversations and you can protect one another by, by preemptively inoculating your neighbor, your friends or your family against misinformation. And it can also be done by journalists in the media who are fact checking to try to be more proactive about this. And it can also be host of, of wonderful podcasts inoculating their audiences uh, against future misinformation by preemptively exposing the tactics and inoculating people against it. And so that's, you know, everyone can participate, I think. Is this something that governments need to think of, perhaps internationally, uh, about uh, either around messaging to serve as a form of inoculation or policing um, media and, and platforms? I think coordination would be ideal. You know, right now, what we're seeing is that a lot of governments and institutions are kind of implementing this in a, in a piecemeal approach. But if we really want to counter the global spread of misinformation, we need to have a coordinated effort, you know, where social media companies, governments and all the institutions are actually aligning and, and cooperating their approach. Because uh, at the end of the day, there's so much of it and it's spreading so widely that in order for to really build what we call, you know, societal mental immunity, um, you need to have a, a coordinated approach. And just in terms of how to convince people who are sceptical that climate change is real, um, who just don't believe it's real. Or even some of the, you know, some, some of the other stuff we've been talking about saying that this won't work. Give our audience a bit of a clue about how to sort of convince people. Yeah, absolutely. So, so you know, when you think about approaching someone who's deep into conspiracy theories or, you know, completely in denial about, about climate change, one of the things that doesn't work is bombarding people with facts or confronting them directly, telling them that they're not informed, that they even that they're stupid or that they're not paying attention, um, because that just leads people to, you know, retreat further and cut themselves off and, and, and remain in their own echo chamber. So what you need is a slower approach. But the thing is that people want change fast. They want to see that change happening in people's uh, people's thought process, right? But you're just going to have to accept that it's going to be a slow, repeated strategy. So one of the things that you can do is is empathize with people. One of the strategies you can use with conspiracies, for example, is acknowledge that some conspiracies have really happened in the past, um, which is true, uh, but that climate obviously isn't a conspiracy. And so that kind of validates part of, of people's feelings. So, there's, you, so you're not saying that they're being ridiculous and that, you know, obviously no conspiracies are real and so on. Another way to do it is to say, look, you know, you're a brother or you're my friend. I really value your opinion. But on, on this particular issue, right, so you need a, a gateway that starts the conversation in a positive way. And then I think it's best to try to reveal the larger manipulation techniques rather than trying to argue about specific facts. Because if you look at the psychology of conspiracies and related content, it's like a multi-level marketing scheme. OK, if you try to if you try to remove a brick, uh, right? They'll, they'll just put another one in its place. Whack-a-mole. Uh, it's a whack-a-mole it's, it's, situation. It's, it's a game of whack-a-mole. It's not going to work. So you need to get people questioning about the larger system. And so one way to do that is, is to, you know, is to raise questions about motives and techniques. And so I often explain this idea of the fake expert or that people make money off of spreading conspiracy theories. You want to get people questioning um, their own beliefs in a more gentle way without directly sort of attacking or refuting specific facts. So you might explain how conspiracy theories work and give different examples, or you might explain that uh, that often the goal is to polarize people, right, and to, to, to get you and I basically to drive a wedge between us. Um, and so you want to find these, these larger techniques that are at play and get people thinking about them. Um, and that 
hopefully translates to, to people seeking out further information, reconsidering their opinions. But it's going to be a, a slightly slower process, but I think ultimately more successful than pushing people too directly. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us. The book is foolproof. And good luck with your further inoculations. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. We're going to speak now to Sean Buchan, who is Campaign Director of Stop Funding Heat. Hello, Sean. Hi there. How are you doing? Doing well. Um, we've butted Sean up already by complimenting his headphones. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm feeling very positive about this conversation. They're very snazzy and red. I'm not sure if anybody of Sean's generation would use the word snazzy, Ed. I think you're complimenting me too much on how old I might look. <laughs> really? Yeah. Okay, okay, okay. Well, whatever filter you're using is, uh, is working for you. So, so tell us about the, the campaign and um, why it was needed. Well, Stop Funding Heat started in 2020 or thereabouts, about 2020, 2019, off the back of uh, the success of Stop Funding Hate and other campaigns like Sleeping Giants that use a similar theory of change. Stop Funding Hate managed to successfully turn the editorial direction of a lot of newspapers in the UK away from anti-migrant and, and hate speech about migrants. There was like this watershed moment where Lego announced it was removing ads from the Daily Mail. And I remember seeing that myself outside of Stop Funding Hate campaign and going, wow, that, that really works, doesn't it? And in 2019 or so, a group of people from Stop Funding Hate got together and made Stop Funding Heat, which is the same thing, uh, sort of making climate misinformation unprofitable. And we've just been going ever since. I joined it in 2020 uh, as, a, as a climate researcher and a climate expert and someone who's been doing a lot of activism in the past. So I was quite, quite chuffed to get on board with it. And tell us, how does it work, the campaign? Well, so the theory of change behind it is, you know, for, for decades, the media across the world, but in this case in the UK, have failed to tell the truth about climate change. There's examples of UK headlines from not too long ago, like the big climate change fraud and global warming stopped 16 years ago. Um, just incredible climate denial things. And... Online, you still have popular content that frequently says climate change is a conspiracy, climate change is a hoax. And this kind of activity just slows down the progress of that. It makes implementing appropriate policies harder. The whole media environment then affects how quickly you can get things through in the country. Media and platforms, they make most of their money through advertising uh, these days. And brands spend millions promoting their green credentials, often through these adverts as well. They don't often realize that they're next to this kind of climate denial or climate misinformation content. When they do realize that, when they're told about it, they'll either silently or sometimes vocally remove their adverts and remove the advertising spend from that article or sometimes from the entire publication or the entire website. And that really cuts this kind of activity at the knees because as soon as a certain editorial direction is no longer profitable, the media will stop doing it. Um, and we saw that with Stop Funding Hate around 2016 and onwards. Uh, and we're starting to see that now with Stop Funding Heat as well. What are some examples of what's been happening and, and your successes? So there was an article in the Daily Express that was quoting a well-known climate denier. I mean, well-known to me, but maybe not to other people. They called her the anti-Greta. Uh, and I guess that's probably because she just mainly her thing was to disagree with mainstream science uh, without really backing it up. Um, so she was sort of a small poster child for climate deniers at the time. And the Daily Express had an article quoting her and 
an energy company in the UK was quite vocal about their displeasure of seeing that. And subsequently, the Daily Express removed the article entirely, saying it really wasn't part of their direction. We saw that when GB News came online uh, in the first six months, there was a huge advertiser flight away from GB News. And part of that was a lot of the hate speech that they have, but also the climate denial and climate misinformation they have on their channel too. At the moment, YouTube is also a revenue stream for an organization like that. And so by, we're informing the advertisers now that they're sort of on the pre-roll adverts or in the middle of like a climate denial rant by one of the presenters. Uh, and that seems to be working well too. It's part of the problem that when companies buy digital advertising, mm. they haven't really got a clear sense of where it's going to end up. Mm -hmm. it's, it's absolutely, it's part of the problem. So Stop Finding Heat are part of a coalition of organisations called uh, Climate Action Against Disinformation. And it's got a whole bunch of organisations from different parts of the spectrum of trying to fight climate misinformation. One, one of these organisations is called Check My Ads, and they're over in the USA. And they sort of proven that this kind of ad tech technology that gets built up and built up, it's almost like it's not like a bug of the system, it's a feature of the system to make it very unclear where your adverts are actually appearing in the end. And even as simple as putting your ads on like Google AdSense or something, it's not clear immediately where your ad's going. But the positive part of that is it's actually very easy to remove your ads, at least on Google. Um, you can go and just exclude a particular website or exclude a particular YouTube channel and then it's done. And so if you've got a marketing department that knows how to do that, uh, it can actually be a, a fix that's done within 24 hours. Can I ask me more about the sort of freelance, more anarchic climate denial that exists on Twitter, mm. Facebook and so on? I would guess that's harder to sort of get at. Talk to us about that, if you would. Yeah, social media platforms are different to what we've been talking about with the media because they're, they're a platform, not a publisher by law. And so they hold content that other people publish. But social media platforms are responsible for their algorithms and there is legislative movement to try and to make them more responsible for that. Now, the, the freelance climate deniers or climate misinformers, you'd be surprised how often they are paid or in some way incentivized by the fossil fuel industry to put that kind of misinformation on there. Stop Funding Heat's coming out of a report in a few weeks, a report that I'm authoring, and actually it... It demonstrates how since the 1950s or maybe before the fossil fuel industry has been covering up, uh, you know, the science that they know on climate change, but also delaying through lobbying activity and corporate front group activity, paying these kind of freelance lobbyists, etc., uh, doing communications campaigns. And it's all part of this big web and network of just trying to delay policy as much as possible. It's more about trying to extend a corporate payday, it seems. Uh, but then it has the consequence of delaying the necessary climate action. So a lot of the activity on Facebook and Twitter and other social media platforms actually is sourced from that too. We're trying to get those social media platforms to recognize this in their policies by recognizing climate misinformation as a problem and then actually taking action to reduce its spread in algorithms and to stop taking money from uh, paid adverts that have climate misinformation in them as well. And how are those conversations going? <laughs> Good question. It's varied. Pinterest came out of a climate misinformation policy last year. Google came out of a climate misinformation policy last year about not accepting money for paid ads. But um, there was a study from the Center for Countering Digital Hate that showed that Google is still accepting money for some climate denial adverts. So it's one thing to put it into policy, but it's another thing to actually implement it. But 
it's a better step than other platforms like Facebook and Twitter have made where it's unclear now whether Twitter still stands by its current policy on climate misinformation and Facebook has yet to put one in. By getting more and more attention on this issue, I think we're really at a point with social media in 2023 where I, most social media users are a bit uncomfortable with how social media works and they're aware that there's a lot of misinformation that goes on there. Trust in social media platforms is quite low uh, compared to other things. Um, so I think the social media platforms are going to have to change their game plan in the next year or two and this is going to be a part of it. Last question for me. Do, do you feel optimistic about our ability to tackle the misinformation that there is? Yes. And I think it's it's in our hands to do so. I think the model of stop funding heat shows that um, the more people that come on board and start talking, using their consumer power to talk to brands, then the more likely we are to get this media environment changing. And that media environment is really, really crucial to the state of misinformation. I think... We're in a we're in interesting times, but I do I do believe in the power of people to come together and make this work. But it's it's nuanced and it's difficult. I'm interested to see whether these very large social media platforms and these very uh, powerful media corporations in the future might be held to account for some of this activity. And I think the next couple of years is really crucial to see if that happens. And is this something our listeners can get involved with? Do you need eyeballs on adverts? Do you do you need fingers on keyboards oh yes definitely yeah yeah we already have a small volunteer team i mean we're we're led by our supporters as much as possible if people like see something in in australia or the usa or france or chile or whatever and they say oh look that's really bad we want to go for that then we'll give them the tools to go for that that's how our theory of change works it's very grassroots led so um if people see adverts uh, or if people want to get involved in like reading the press and looking for misinformation or writing to brands by email or twitter or stuff they can get involved and it's something that's very tangible and clearly has a, an effect straight away so yeah we welcome everyone to, to come you know, look us up on twitter or social media or on our website and and get involved you heard that look up stop funding heat sean buchan thanks so much for talking to us thank you well, it feels like a really important subject, doesn't it? Absolutely. And it's so interesting how the misinformation and disinformation has, has moved on from outright denial of the climate crisis to saying this solution isn't going to work. What's the point in doing this if this country doesn't do this, fostering a, a sense of helplessness? Also, I was really interested to hear about the the way that it's moved on to wrap it into a politicisation. So if you're the sort of person who is, for example, anti-vaccine, you're likely to be climate sceptical as well, when those things don't go together. But it, it's sowing the seeds of mistrust. The thing that really struck me about this debate is climate denial is, is I think, much rarer now in the mm. mainstream media. And so in a way, it goes underground. I mean, I know it's not completely underground, but it just spreads on social media in ways that aren't so obvious and so maybe aren't rebutted in the same way. Do you, mm. do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's like if the BBC has a climate denier on it, it becomes a big hoo-ha about the BBC having somebody on. And then what they say is debunked. That was the old days. But now it's just there circulating on social media. And that's why it seems so important that these social media platforms involve themselves in, the, in this flagging. I thought that was really interesting as well, because even, so, so, so say a traditional media um, like GB News, if, if they get some crank on there spouting some climate denial, more people see it on social media than ever see it 
on broadcast media. And if social media get on board with this idea that that stuff is flagged, then it it discredits them. So they stop doing it, along with the stuff like campaigns like uh, Stop Funding Heat. You know, hits hits them where it hurts with the advertising as well. I, I thought what was really interesting about what Sander said is that question about what really works. And we discussed at some length the idea that almost all scientists believe that human-induced climate change is real. This thing about local facts, what's happening locally, what's happening in your area, I think is a really interesting idea because it sort of relates to people's everyday experience. And of course, we are now at the stage where climate change is real and is here. Mm. We saw it this year with the 40 degree day in the UK. So I think there's something really interesting about that. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. If you've got thoughts on what you've heard on today's episode, please uh, let us know. You can find us at cheerfulpodcast.com. If you've got suggestions for future shows, comments on this show, cooking recipes, pickleball experiences. Any of the above. Any of the above or or anything else. And if it feels like a lot of effort to send us a message, you could always get ChatGPT to generate it and we probably wouldn't notice. That's true. So this is um, the, the name of this listener they withheld their name and but and signed an early career teacher and it goes like this i did and jeff happy new year long time listener but i've never written in before uh, but this week's episode was extremely thought-provoking for me i'm an early career teacher working in a comprehensive secondary school and so much of what was discussed rang true i entered the profession with a great love of my subject and a vision of helping to close the disadvantage gap in practice i feel a little shell-shocked by the way it really is as such i was really inspired by all your guests and particularly andy that's andy sprakes Uh, from XP School, and it got me reflecting about my own practice. My best lessons happened when I managed to give the children a sense of their learning purpose that reaches beyond this is on the national curriculum and extends into talking about what it means to be a human and making the world or our small piece of it better. It's lessons like this where even my most difficult children can shine. I think we need to discuss explicitly with our children what the point of school is and to know the answer ourselves. And it has to be more of a selling point than I had to do this when I was your age. I wonder if this would help teachers too. Thanks for reading and for your excellent thought-provoking content as ever. Good email. Yeah. Um, We got a lot of interesting responses to last week's episode, so thank you for that. Uh, This one comes from Benjamin, who says, Hi, Jeff and Ed. During the discussion with Suzanne Hayward, Jeff proposed opening schools at the weekend so that grown-ups can use the apparatus. Ed shot down the idea immediately. There's more. I didn't want to use the apparatus. But other people do. Yeah, okay, I was just had bad, bad experiences on a pommel horse. Jump onto a crash mat. Um, <laughs> I bet you weren't very good on the pommel horse. Though, no, no, you? but I like the apparatus. Rope burns. Benjamin says, with a few tweaks, I think it is a great proposal. Spaces to play are all too rare in our cities, where parks can be overcrowded or hard to access. The streets are full of cars and many people don't have gardens. I'm writing to you from Paris, where a recent initiative has seen school playgrounds opening at weekends. Anyone is welcome, but it's primarily aimed at children and families. In fact, this could make an excellent basis for a future episode. On the theme of how cities that are good for our youngest citizens are good for everyone. We've touched on that a little bit with the idea of play before, but always something worth coming back to. Um, And Benjamin also sends us some more information on what's happening in Paris, as well as some other pro-kid policies. So we can put those in the show notes, can we, Rachel? Yeah. Yeah. The next one comes from uh, Amelia, a long-term 
it's, I noticed, by the way, that I always read out the sort of nice pleasantries and you don't. Is that, that's been a long-standing thing, isn't it? Yes, you have no shame about reading out compliments. Well, I, take maybe the, I'm more ne- I take the compliment. Maybe I'm more needy than, than you, actually. No one is more needy out. than me. No, I know. That's what I thought. But uh, I'm very self-conscious about how I present my neediness. Oh, uh, so you're better at hiding your neediness. <laughs> yeah. Hyde and Jeff, long-time fan of the pod here. That was my neediness. Um, <laughs> Recently listened to your fungi episode and thought I'd write in to let you know about mushroom tinctures. Unfortunately, I've been struggling with long COVID all year since catching COVID in January. One of the persistent symptoms I've experienced is brain fog. So I recently started taking a lion's mane supplement, which is meant to support cognition, concentration and mental clarity. There are also lots of interesting uses of fungi mentioned in the new series of Zac Efron's Netflix documentary series, including helping with carbon absorption and supporting regenerative agriculture. Anyway, I thought you'd be interested to know about all these reasons to be cheerful about fungi. And that's from Amelia. P.S. I listened to last week's episode on the train from Amsterdam to Bruges and international train travel is definitely my reason to be cheerful at the moment. I thought it could be a good idea for a podcast episode. It was the 50th anniversary of the Interrail Pass. Oh, I'm completely, I'm completely into that idea. That's great. I always love reading news stories about they're going to be launching a new route, which will get you from yeah. Manchester to Berlin in how yeah. many hours. And then they never seem to come to much. But uh, I really like that vision of the future. You definitely. I love a sleeper train. Do you? Are you not like a sleeper train? Mm, no, I like trains, but I, I don't I know. I like sleeping in my bed. Mm. Do you know what I'd love to do? Yeah. Orient Express. Mm. Have you seen the prices of it? No. Completely inaccessible to anybody who isn't like a hedge funder or something. Is that because you watched Murder on the Orient Express as a child? I don't know. You I just I romanticise that kind of um, golden age of train travel. Uh, I suppose it is Murder on the Orient you know, Express. Actually, now that yeah, I think about restaurant it. cars, porters. Now that I think about it, you know, we were talking about sort of those pictures earlier, and I think I could see you as a Hercule Poirot. Uh huh. I think you get rid of the beard, do a little tweak of the moustache. Mm. What do you think? Well, any casting directors listening? You've got friends who work in theatre and film and yeah. television, directors and so on. Maybe you could have a word for me. Maybe you are the missing Poirot. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Well, we're in the outro, ho ho. And uh, do you remember last week I was, I was trying to sell you on the traitors? Yes, I think you, by the way, it has sort of popped into my head a bit since then. So it has, you've sold it a bit. A lot of people, and and this was what happened with us, are discovering it after it originally aired on the TV. It's becoming a bit of a cultural phenomenon. So the other day... So is it finished? Yeah, it it finished before Christmas. But you can catch up on the iPlayer. Right. You can do that these days. You can, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, So I, in an idle moment the other day, had a look on Cameo... Now, Cameo is this app where people of varying degrees of fame will send you video messages for varying amounts of money. I found one of the stars of The Traitors on there, and I bought a message for my wife. Wow. For anybody who is interested in that show, I'll play it now. Um, I'm pretty much set on the Sarah Barron theory, because I suppose in life you can be a massive criminal and still be funny. Now, that is Maddie. Wow. Who was one of the breakout stars? She was very much the broken clock of the group, right twice a day. Right. Oh, Ed, it's so good. I did uh, tweet that I was trying to persuade you to take part in any potential celebrity versions, and uh, that, that, that did garner a certain amount of support. There is an appetite for it amongst your public. And how many episodes are there to watch? I think 10 or 12. Right. Interesting. And I'm not a reality show person most of the time. Well, 
There you go. And if you went on Celebrity Traitors, if it ever happens, you could get a little side hustle going in cameos. Take it under advisement. Should we thank our guests? Yes. I'd like to thank Jenny King, Sander van der Linden, and Sean Buckham. Emma Corsham is our audio producer. Rachel Balmer is our content producer, supported by Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. James Deacon made our eye dents. Our theme music was composed by Ed Seed, and our artwork was designed by... Henry Cole. He's been Ed Miliband. He's been Jeff Lloyd. And these have been... Reasons to be cheerful. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.